Welcome to Liberty's Talk, the podcast of Liberty's Journal. I am Celeste Marcus, managing editor of Liberty's and the host of this podcast, on which I talk with our writers and the larger Liberty Circle about whatever is on our minds. On this episode of the podcast, I am joined by the estimable Morton Hoy Jensen, who is a writer based in Brooklyn, which is where they keep them. Um, and he is, uh, in addition to being an essayist and a literary critic, he is also um, a biographer, which will be relevant in this conversation. Um, and he has written an essay for us entitled The Fiction That Dare Not Speak Its Name, which is the subject of the conversation. Morton, it is a pleasure to have you on Liberty's Talk today to discuss your essay, The Fiction That Dare Not Speak Its Name, which appeared in the most recent issue of Liberty's, um, and which is a very thoughtful, studied essay arguing against the virtues and usefulness of literary biography. Um, It is a provocative essay, which I assume you intended it to be, and it has engendered much discussion and made um, biographers across the nation quake, so um, myself included. So uh, rather than rather than sum it up for you, I'm going to I'm going to let you uh, summarize the essay itself and talk a bit about what you were trying to do with it. Sure. Uh, so I think I was trying to to do two things. One was to, I mean, I've, I've been, always been very interested in the genre of biography, and I've always tended to read a lot of biographies. Um, and, it, you know, it, it's just one of those genres that I think, for reasons good and bad, gets um, a bad rep. Um, and, you you know, the, the, the reasons why are, are sort of immediately obvious, um, because there's always, I mean, even just in the last year, uh, you know, there have been a number of fairly controversial uh, biographies. There just always seems to be a lot of controversy that comes with a lot of um, um, a lot of biographies, and just with the biographical enterprise in, in general. Um, and there was always a lot of um, sort of squabbling about, uh, you know, which biography is the definitive one, etc. Um, and one thing I wanted to do was to kind of push against the idea that any, any biography can be definitive or that there is even such a thing as an accurate uh, biography. Um, because I, I think, you know, there, there's this quote I mentioned by, by Roland Barthes um, where he says that um, biography is, is fiction that dare not speak its name. Um, and I think that, um, that, you know, there's so much imaginative work that goes into uh, telling the story of someone else's life is necessarily so, especially when it's someone that you likely never met or someone who, you know, in many cases lived uh, decades, if not hundreds of years ago. And all the kind of document, uh, all the, the documents and letters and diaries and everything else that you can find is, of course, very, very important. And that creates, I think, a kind of uh, a framework. Uh, but you have to put something in that framework. Um, and that is, you know, that is necessarily going to be uh, fiction or at least in large part fiction, um, because it's, it's no different than I think than many other kinds of, of writing. I mean, telling a story means leaving things out, putting things in, making choices along the way. And I just think it's, it's, um, that we should talk more openly about, uh, how necessary fiction and imagination is, even when we're writing about uh, real people. So you, you started out by saying that 
biography is a, a kind of it's a genre that you you like a lot and it's clear mm-hmm. actually it's clear actually from the essay that you um you've read a lot of biographies and also that they they mean they occupy a significant space in your in your mind and imagination um and i think the the, one of the things that i was struck by while reading your essay is that you seem it seemed not like you were frustrated with the entire enterprise but that you were disappointed by that they didn't they didn't provide a kind of closeness that you had been looking for and that maybe was the reason that you kept going back to them yeah um, yeah, that's a very good way of putting it. And I, it's one of the one of the other things I wanted to touch on in the essay uh, that's related to what you just asked is this somewhat more recent genre of um, biographies of books. Hmm. Um, so the the one that I uh, one of the most famous ones is Michael Gora's uh, The Portrait of a Novel, which is a, a book about portrait of a lady. Um, and there have been other ones, you know, about Camus, uh, the, the Stranger, and um, there's one on Orwell's 1984, et cetera, et cetera. And this is, these have become quite uh, popular uh, recently. You see more and more of these types of books uh, being published. And it's a very interesting genre to me because it sort of changes the hierarchy uh, of, of the biographical uh, or of the biography, because inevitably these books do become um, biographies of their subjects except they take... Uh, you mean biographies the of the authors? Yes, sorry. Okay. Um, and, but they, but they, instead of having the writer um, as the centerpiece, it's a specific work of art that is the centerpiece. Of, so of the they, book. is it that they use the art as a way to under, they use a specific work as a way of understanding the author or the artist more broadly? I think so, yeah. Um, and it, it, just, it just means that the text itself becomes uh, the, um, the most important part of the book which just seems like the, the, the more correct um, um, way of prioritizing because ultimately why are we interested in say Melville or Virginia Woolf or, or whomever? Well, it's because of the, the books that they wrote. Yeah. It felt so it, it seemed, it seemed to me like you had pointed out that there's this problem, there's this problem with literary biography. And I think the way that I understood your articulation of the problem is that the most important part of a writer's life is the part that we don't have any access to. And that's like when pen gets put to paper because it doesn't matter. Everything that happens around that is less significant than that actual act. And no matter, even, even if we knew like, you know, the exact regimen, a writer's exact writing structure, the hours that they wrote during the day, like the walks that they took in between the writing, which for some, like, you know, for Kant, we know exactly what that was. Um, It has, it doesn't shed any light on what was actually happening when they were writing, even if we know Mm. about all the technical conditions. And like something that I kept being reminded of while struggling with your essay, while reading it and while being like, tormented by it when I was no longer reading it <laughs> was there's this um there's an interview the entire thing is on YouTube and everybody should watch it because it's with it's with Michael Ignatieff and Isaiah Berlin um but it's what it's like Michael is this dashing young intellectual and I swear like every time he smiles my heart stops <laughs> um, I, I watched I discovered this like several years ago and I've watched it so many times but, I'm watch um, it right after this. you have to watch it as I Berlin became like really interested in the counter enlightenment because he, he he wanted to be able to study his enemies and understand them it was like opposition research um, which is not a phrase that he used, but th- that's what he was doing. He was trying to understand 
minds that were so alien to him. He thought that he had an intellectual responsibility to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, he actually, he introduced many of his readers to people like Vico, who they would never have heard of otherwise. Right, right. Um, and who he, he strongly disagreed with, but he had real sympathy for, he, he, he was rather, let me put it this way, not sympathy. He had real appreciation for their genius, even though he didn't agree with them. Mm. Um, and in, after after Michael asks him about the the Marx biography, he but Berlin says, "I knew what it was like to stand in a room with Marx. Hmm. Like he he felt that he had done enough research that he could he knew what he what his personality was like. He knew the weather around him. Um, mm. That was how close he had gotten to understanding Marx. Um, and I was thinking about this because it was like, well." Morton doesn't think that's possible. (laughs) And and I wonder if (laughs) maybe you do think that that's possible, but you don't think it's possible. Like maybe Berlin knew what it was like to stand in a room with Marx, but he didn't know what it was like to sit on the side of the, like by the wall while Marx was writing, like what the weather and room was like when he was by himself. Yeah. Um, Which are very, which are two very different things. And maybe you're saying that only the latter matters. Right. Well, Hmm. So I think, and, and maybe a better way of having even started to summarize my what I was trying to say in, the, in, in this piece is that, in a sense, a biography is a kind of doomed genre uh, mm-hmm. because it's it's an impossible thing to do. You cannot possibly write um, any kind of you know accurate or even authoritative account of someone someone else's life. Um, I mean, that, I feel like that's just a kind of a basic thing that should be acknowledged. Because um, when you say authoritative. Do you mean, is this like your, your point about the definitive biography versus? Uh, yeah, that, that, yeah, that's one aspect of it, but also just in terms of, you know, any, anyone who were, who was, to, if someone was to read an account that someone else had written of their life, they would probably think this is completely inaccurate, mm-hmm. um, you know, because of, well, for many reasons, but, um, um, but so there is just, it, it's a doomed genre from the beginning, which I kind of like about <laughs> biography. Um, okay. And as you point out, uh, the what's fascinating about especially literary biography or you know any biography of an artist is that we, you know, we're, we're drawn to these people because they create things, but we cannot be present for the moment of creation. Uh, we can be in the room, perhaps, uh, and we can you know we can document uh, the moments of creation. Uh, we can. You know, document how a book, how a novel was written, and, and what entered into it, and, and and all these things. But, but the very, very moment that a pen is put to paper, um, or where the, those things come from in the mind of a writer, um, are always going to elude us. Um, and that obviously presents uh, issues for any anyone wanting to write about um, a writer, especially because um, there, there's an anecdote that. Uh, Christian Lawrenson has mentioned in a book forum piece from a few months ago where a prominent biographer told him that there will never be a biography of Don DeLillo because all he does is sit at his desk and write books. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's kind of one of the things I, I um, get into in, in, in the essay. Yeah, you is make that, a similar point. Sorry? You make a similar point. Yeah, that, that you know, for, for literary biographies to be exciting to some extent, there should probably be some kind of external uh, drama. Um, I mean, not necessarily, but but that that certainly helps. You know, if, 
there and and you know there are many many literary biographies that are a form of what um, John Updike called higher gossip, um, and that is certainly part of their attraction too. I mean, there's no you know who who isn't attracted to the idea of reading a a biography of of Norman Mailer or Sylvia Plath when there's just so much personal drama there. Um, but do you feel like those are distractions? Like they've been fattened with these juicy bits that are really not, um, they don't really get at the heart of the matter. These are kind of, these are kind of besides the point. They can be. I mean, I think certainly in the case of Plath, because there have been, you know, 14, 15 biographies of her that at this point, it just, every time you sit down to read another Plath biography, you just think, I, I, I at least get this sense that we're just getting further and further away from, from who she might have been. Um, yeah, you said it, it's just been paved over and over and over again. Yeah, and I mean, she, she's a tricky example, too, because of all the posthumous um, uh, kind of disputes that there have been between family members um, and the, you know, the never-ending controversy with her relationship with Ted Hughes. Um, so, you know, she, she is a, perhaps a, you know, a, kind of a singular uh, example and, and maybe not very representative for that reason. Um, but to go back to that excellent uh, quote that, that, Ber- that Isaiah Berlin says about um, he knows what it's like to be in a room with Karl Marx, um, I know what he means. Um, and I think any biographer will feel after they've written an account of someone's life that they will, they will um, insist that they knew that person in some way. Uh, and in, in my own very limited uh, experience writing a, a short uh, biography of a, a 19th century Danish novelist, Jens Peter Jakobsen, um, you know, I spent three, three and a half years working on it and, um, you know, pouring over his, his books, diaries, letters, uh, accounts of his life, and just thinking about him. And, um, and I would say the same thing that, that Isaiah Berlin said about, about Jakobsen. I would say I knew what it was like to be in a room with him. Um, and I'm convinced that, that, uh, that my portrait of him, um, is, um, is, you know, very close to who he was. Um, and I think that's something that every biographer probably should feel, uh, because you want to, you want to, you want that, the, the texture of that kind of intimacy, uh, to be part of the project. So you don't regret it. <laughs> Sorry. You don't regret writing a literary biography. No, no, no. And I, I, I will probably write more uh, if, if uh, you know, if, if people want to, to read them. Um, <laughs> and, and uh, you know, no, that, I mean, that's one of the reasons that I, I wanted to write this essay is because um, I feel like I have skin in the game when it comes to biography, because it's, it's something I, I mean, even the, the, this book about Thomas Mann that I'm, I'm writing now is, is also partially a kind of, of uh, a biography of a certain point in his life. And, uh, you know, whatever notes and ideas I have for future projects, I can see that there's a constant uh, drift towards some kind of um, uh, biography. Um, and I, I got into this habit in my, when I was much younger, in my early 20s, that every time I was reading, uh, you know, a, a great writer for the first time, if I was reading Tolstoy or, or George Eliot for the first time, I would, I would read their novels with a, a biography or, or two on the side. Um, just because I find that I find the curiosity about um, the creators of these works of art to be a very uh, normal and understandable impulse. You find that 
do you think that that you don't think that that's an idiosyncratic impulse? Do you think that that's natural? I think it's fairly natural. I mean, it must be if you know, since there are so many biographies that continue to be written, um, and they they continue to be. I mean, I don't know what they what they sell in general, but um, you know, but they they certainly occupy the uh, the pop, the public the reading public's imagination. You say at one point in in the essay, and you allude to this, you allude to it throughout, but I think at one point you say it explicitly that there's there's the writer's outer life and the writer's inner life, and mm. and there isn't a bridge from the external to the internal. Mm-hmm. So, and I was I was struck by that because so. I think there, there's a way to approach a literary biography or biography of any artist. Um, there, I guess there are two ways to do it. You can decide that what you're doing is really trying to understand the art and the person's life is sort of, um, you know, garnish. Um, or you can decide that there is, which is, which is kind of, it's deciding that there actually is a way to the internal and that the external is, is, um, immaterial, or at least it's it's a distraction. It's mm. inessential. Or you can decide that the external is really what we have to what we have best access to, and it allows us. It's authentic, even if it's incomplete. I think it, 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 I agree with you that if you're deciding to write a biography of a of an artist, you're doing it because you are interested somehow in their art. I hope that that's why. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think that if, I think that if somebody was going to write a biography of an artist and they were not interested in their art, Mm. um, it would be the, the biography, the work would be lackluster because there would be a kind of admiration or devotion that would be missing. Um, Yeah. And you can always tell when you read those kinds of biographies. Um, I mean, I think James, one one good example, uh, is James Atlas's biography of Saul Bellow that came out while Bellow was still alive. Um, and it was just very clear that from the book that James Atlas didn't particularly like uh, Saul Bellow. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's, it's not that it has to be a play date between the biographer and, and the subject. You know, don't, you don't have to like them, but you should certainly have some kind of interest in them and, you know, some kind of sympathy for, if not for who they were, who they might have been as human beings, but then at least for, for what uh, they achieved artistically. Um, yeah. And in, yeah. in, that, in that book, it didn't, you know, it didn't, I, I can't, I can't recall a single thing that James Atlas has said about Bellow's writing that, um, that a lot of other people have not uh, said in, in much better ways. Yeah, I think that there's at least, it, it's not that it has to be um, hero worship, but I think that there's a kind of tenacity or um, obsession, really. I think you have to be kind of obsessed with, with the project and you can't, you're not going to be dissatisfied with every explanation that feels like off that doesn't really fit this this creature mm. um if you're if you're not devoted in some way to what they accomplished yeah and i think that that's that's the thing that you even in a biography of somebody that i think is that you know misrepresents them say that there's an artist who i read in a particular way or who i i interpret in a particular way and somebody else interprets them differently mm. but if that person like this isn't a biography. This is just like a conversation that I've had. I've talked with Agnes Callard a lot about, um, Oh God, his name just fell out of my head. The director that she's obsessed with. Oh my God. Jesus Christ. (laughs) Oh my God. I'm embarrassed. Shit. I'm going to have to cut this out. Hold on one second. Um, Oh my God. I can't remember. I can't remember his name. 
Swedish. What's his name? Oh, Ingmar Bergman. Yes. God. <laughs> anyway, she interprets him very differently than I do, but she's obsessed with him. And so even if, you know, there's a, now I've just completely lost credibility because I forgot his name, but still, <laughs> if we've just watched a movie and like, I have this particular interpretation, I think, and it's completely different from hers, but she is like obsessed with him and she's devoted so much time to trying to understand him. Even if I, even if it bothers me that I feel like she's getting him wrong, I still have to listen to her. Um, yeah. Um, and I, yeah. Yeah. That, that's a great point. Um, and, and you're, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. I've read plenty of biographies, um, about writers that, that I admire or that I know very well and, and, and find that, you know, feel that the biographer is getting something wrong. Um, yeah. but still, but still, you know, that can obviously still be, um, very, very valuable. But um, even, but if the, if the, if if the argument is that there is that there is no bridge from the external to the internal, and that means that maybe you should just be focusing on the external because that's what you've got to go on, then how is this? How is the solution to that to focus on a single work that feels like making the problem like even worse? Because well, you know, um, yeah, I mean, I think I, I wouldn't say that there is no bridge between the internal and the external, or rather that the bridge is the imagination. Um, that that is where, you know, you have to kind of uh, take off your your documentary documentarian hat, and and that's where the, the the fictional element of biography comes in because there is no way to access. Um, I mean, there is no way to access a single other human being's uh, interior life, least of all someone that you're that you probably never knew um, or who may be long dead, and that's where the imagination comes in. Um, and that, that's sort of the, the point that I, mm. uh, I, I try to make in the piece is that, yes, you can do all this external stuff and that's very valuable. And, um, you know, we should obviously, um, be, be careful when it comes to the kind of evidence that we use and the facts, et cetera, those things should be gotten right. But what really, um, animates a biography is that imaginative leap that the biographer has to take, uh, to, in order to. Um, imagine themselves into the interior life of their subject. Okay. Um, and then the problem, the problem with novels about artists is that instead of giving them, it, sh it should give you license to have more imagination, yeah. but it actually does the opposite. And that's what they rarely ever do. And that's the kind of the second half of my essay focuses more on uh, the genre, you know, the of biographical fiction. Mm -hmm. Um and um, and it's an extraordinarily frustrating uh, genre, I often find, because, you know, in, in many cases, I mean, the, the one that I dwell the most on is, is Colin Toybean's recent uh, novelization of the life of Thomas Mann. And, you, you know, I, reading it, it, it just it reads like uh, a very diligently uh, paraphrased biography. Were and, you excited to read that book? Did you? Did you have uh, higher expectations for it or were you suspicious that it would be kind of anemic? I am not sure what my, I think I was more nervous than anything because I've been preoccupied with Thomas Mann now for close to five years. And you, you know, you, you inevitably you become sort of territorial. Yeah. And every time someone else writes about what you're occupied with, you get sort of annoyed, you know, and feel like they're, they're sneaking on into your, your backyard or something. I can't possibly um, understand. Exactly. <laughs> Get um, out of there. 
but but uh, no, I, I was just extraordinarily frustrated with the book, um, and you know, I, I can sort of point to which which paragraph in that novel. You know, oh, that's where he's he's uh, you know, I can tell that he's read Ronald Hayman's uh, biography, and that one I can see he's read Hamann Kutzka's biography, yeah. and it was just very emblematic of that type of novel. It just it lacks imagination because it 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 becomes so anxious almost as if he, he feels that he didn't have a right to do this. And so he has this like sturdy handrail, which is all the, you know, the, the research and the biography that he's done. Um, and that's just, you know, then, then why not just, then why write the novel in the first place? If, if why do you think, why, why would someone decide to write a novel like that? I mean, it, um, is it, yeah. What, what is it that they're trying to give themselves permission to do? I mean, in some, I think I say this in the piece that on some level I, I can understand the impulse um, because if there is a writer that you uh, that you have spent a lifetime reading um, and that they mean a, their work means a lot to you and you yourself are a novelist, um, well, in some ways it seems inevitable or or um, unavoidable that you might want to imagine what they were like as human beings. Um. And obviously, and I, I mentioned examples of cases in which I think this has done, been done more successfully. Um, but um, I mean, in Toybin's case, I don't know if it's because you know he had an overwhelming success with his uh, his novel, The Master, which is about Henry James, which was I think shortlisted for the Booker Prize and generally very very well received. Although when I went back and reread it after the, the Thomas Mann book, I actually found that it was had had similar issues with it that I did with the the magician. Um, I don't know what it why. Is it a kind of nervousness, like anxiety that he's uh, he's going to permit himself too much, and so he gives himself very little leash? I, I mean, I guess so. And it's not. I don't want to. I don't want to just pick on Toybean, but th this is something that you see <laughs> with a lot of other examples of this kind of, of novel as well. That they end up just being. They seem they you know ironically lack imagination. They lack fiction. But isn't it um, worse when you come across somebody talking about Mon and they have they're just making stuff up, or you read it and you're like, oh, they've read this account and we know that this account is entirely wrong. Or you know, it doesn't isn't that worse? Um, does that not happen because there's so much scholarship that happens a lot with Satine? <laughs> uh, no, that does happen. Um, and with someone like Mann, I mean, he, he, you know, each each writer also presents their own difficulties, and especially with Thomas Mann, because his his life was lived in this very uh, rigorous, um, disciplined, controlled uh, way um, in, in in terms of his private life. Um, but we know from his diaries that he had, you know, very a very lively um, erotic imagination um, that he had. You know, these these um, very intense homosexual longings throughout his life um, that he never acted on, um, and so um, I kind of lost my train of thought there. You'd but, want to be able to give him those. To, you want to give him the opportunity to fulfill those longings, and is that what we were trying to say? Like if you were if you were going to allow yourself to write a like fanfic about mm. Thomas Mann, you'd want to like let him finally fulfill those desires. Well, I mean, and that's kind of what Toybean does, but it's just not very convincing because, um, you know, if if his if his novel had been um, 
you know, if it had been more creative, more imaginative, if, if it wasn't just, you know, a, a cradle to the grave account, um, then perhaps, you know, he could have done more. He given himself more leash to imagine um, Thomas Mann acting on his desires. Because the way that it's presented in this novel, it's just not very convincing because I, I, you know, I, I don't think you could find a single Mann scholar or, or expert or biographer who actually believes that he ever um, acted on his, uh, his desires. Yeah, and it feels um, like toy being cared about that too much. I mean, I guess one thing that I was thinking about while <laughs> just arguing with you in, in, my, in my head <laughs> is that... Um, if if somebody just had was was able to do give a full throated account of whatever it is that they've imagined, then maybe all of these shortcomings that you're listing would just would just fall away. Like even if they, you know, I guess the what I was imagining was, um, do you know you know the actress Isabel Huppert? Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay, I, I'm obsessed with her. I know you are. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, poorly kept secret. Um, so, uh, basically, every time that she, she sometimes plays act, she sometimes plays roles that are based on historical figures, and it doesn't matter whether she doesn't do any research for her parts. We know very little about her process, but we know that she doesn't do research for her parts. She just allows herself to inhabit them fully, and so she becomes whatever it is that she's assigned herself to be. And even if you would think, oh, that person wasn't really like that, because she is giving such a human. Um, enactment of her interpretation of this person, it, it's significant even if it wasn't real. And I guess the thing that the, the thing that she can't ask herself is, am I being loyal enough mm. she, to this other person? Because then she would be trying too hard to be somebody else and she wouldn't be fully inhabiting the, this creature herself. Yes. But with these accounts, there, it, it just, it, it's like a lack of soulfulness because they, yes. they don't believe themselves. Yeah. That's, that's a great analogy to, to this problem. Yeah. I mean, they, they become so anxious about, you know, is this factually correct? Uh, and, you know, you can, you can feel and, and feel the weight of all the research that they've done. Um, and I think that just imprisons them. Yeah. Um, and like that they, a, you're, they're novelists. They should say, fuck the facts. Uh, who right. cares? This is a, a work of complete fiction. I have license to do whatever I want with this. Um, right. And, it's, and that's, what, that's what disappoints me um, with these novels, is, is that they, they become just sort of like watered down biographies. Mm -hmm. And even in a biography, I mean, I think that it, probably for a biographer, for, for a biographer who's really sunk their teeth into the project and has convinced themselves of their own mastery, which is probably just as important as actually mm -hmm. mastering it, is convincing yeah. yourself of it. Because if, you keep, if there's like a question mark at the end of every sentence, the reader knows that. Yeah, um, that's, that's a good way know? of putting it. But, but if, if a writer is able to do that, um, is able to like convince themselves that they understand it in a biography, we know that like, you know, Isaiah Berlin said that. He said that he knew what it was like to stand in a room with Marx. But you know what? I don't believe him. <laughs> I, be I believe that he believes that. And I think that he probably needs to believe that. But I don't, I don't believe that it was really the case. And I guess the, well, one reason I don't believe it is because, what, uh, because of the reason that you give, which is that there is just a, an enormous difference between the version of oneself that one chooses to, to inhabit when one is writing Mm -hmm. I'm a very different person when I'm writing than like when I'm talking to you. Mm -hmm. I have to like really 
convince myself that I'm, I have something substantial to say, um, yep. which takes a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> same work in the same way. It's horrible. <laughs> um, so, you know, I guess one, one thing that I think about a lot is, um, you know, PG Woodhouse. Yeah. Oh, I love, love Woodhouse. Okay. Woodhouse was like the most anxious, nervous, soft-spoken mm-hmm. person. He had to give, isn't that hilarious? Like he could yeah, barely, I know. Yeah, yeah. very, very shy. He, he was like invited to be like a guest of honors at some dinner. I think he was given an award and somebody asked him to speak and he like stood up, turned bright red and sat down again. <laughs> and like, this is the man that has it, how could somebody like that have imagined have permitted themselves to be so funny exactly yeah how could how could he imagine those characters yeah and and, yeah. and so many eloquent speeches uh, and so much great dialogue in those in the um uh, Wooster and Jeeves novels yeah yeah and also like you have to it takes a lot of security to think that you're funny yeah you know like believing yeah. that you have the power to make other people laugh that that takes guts so it was oh, it it, it's just an entirely different individual it's just not but it's I think not you're, yeah. you're um, sorry your, your point about um isaiah berlin I, I completely agree with with that distinction that you make because yes i, I don't believe him either when he says I, I know it was what it was like to be in a room with Karl marx just that nobody should believe me when i say i know what it's like to be <laughs> against peter jacobson but I need, like you said, I need Except to believe you. You yes, need to believe I it. I need to believe it. Otherwise, what the hell am I doing in that room in the first place? Yeah, exactly. Um, and you have—that's the room you have to keep going back into if you're going to write about him. Exactly, and to and and that's that's the the imaginative leap, getting into right. that room. That's uh, what takes, um, what what requires. That's where the fiction comes into writing a biography. That will fuel all of your writing, and all yeah. all that matters is that. There is, there is a room in your mind in which you and your subject are alone together and you yes. have special access to them. Yeah. And once you are able to achieve that, then you will be so convinced of your own veracity that you will have to get this thing out of you and onto paper because you're, you're so certain that yeah. you understand and other people don't. Um, and, and, and inevitably, uh, as I also mentioned in the piece, but I haven't mentioned yet today, is that you know, inevitably your, your portrait of this artist or writer or whatever is going to be partially a self, a portrait of yourself also, yeah. uh, because, you know, it's, it's your, it's your mind that's doing the imagining. Um, and when you're locked in that room, as you, as you put it with your subject for, for years, maybe, um, you know, you begin to, you know, you inhabit that, that subject's mental and emotional life as you understand it. Um, and that obviously requires a lot of, of your own um, men, um, emotional and, and mental experience. Um, and and that's, that's, I think, that's, that's the, real, the real fun of writing about um, another person. Yeah, um, even, even if it's not, it, it doesn't have to be projection. It can just no, be not at all. whatever temperament allows you to notice things about them that other people wouldn't notice. Yeah. You know? And yeah, and, and you learn a lot about yourself that you know, maybe it, it won't make it into the book, um, as you say, because, it, you know, you don't want to be projecting your own story. But I, th- I can't remember who said it. I think it was Camus who said that some of us are never more ourselves than when we are writing about others. <laughs> um, and I've always liked that quote because I have absolutely zero desire to, to write about myself. Um, and yet, of course, that is also what I'm doing when I'm writing about Jakobsen or Thomas Mann. Um, so I'm very, yeah. very fond of that quote. 
yeah, it's um, it's honest and it's carry away. Yeah. But it, it also um, it makes me think that maybe we have to not know these people as well as we pretend to ourselves that we do because if we ever knew a, a, a flesh and blood individual as well as we convince ourselves that we know our subjects, we could never write about them. Yeah, and I, I someone once asked me, um, do you ever think that you could write a biography of someone who was still alive? Uh, and I said, absolutely not. Of course, there is the, the problem of the other people's lives that you necessarily will touch on. Um, there's a great essay by one of my favorite biographers and, and critics of all time, Ian Hamilton, a uh, little known British um, um, editor and, and biographer and, and, and poet. And he wrote uh, the, the first uh, official biography of Robert Lowell. He famously wrote uh, or tried to write a biography of J.D. Salinger, and he was sued um, by J.D. Salinger. Um, and he has this great essay called um, A Biographer's Misgivings, in which he, he, he talks about his experience working on both of those um, biographies, and they presented you know, a lot of challenges. In the case of Lowell, who, he knew Robert Lowell quite well uh, when Lowell was in, in London in the 70s. Um, and, you know, at, at that point, he was frequently manic and, and clearly not doing well uh, mentally. And uh, Ian Hamilton writes about, you know, his regrets about the, um, you know, the wounds that he had to open up as a biographer. Mm -hmm. All the hours he spent listening to other people tell their stories uh, the, the letters that he read, the diaries, um, and and then you know in the, in the case of Salinger, he he writes about you know again having you know tried to write this book that then becomes this massive lawsuit and, and so on. Um, but it's a very honest um, essay that that really sum, sums up all the dangers and, and kind of pitfalls of writing about people who are still alive, um, and it requires. I think someone made of stronger stuff than I am to, to be able to, to do that because know. you're, you know, you're wading into uh, a minefield. Um, and then, I don't know how people write memoirs. I have no idea how people write memoirs. Cause then you have to write about everybody you care about mm -hmm. or, or be dishonest. It's actually just yeah. thinking if you're, if, if you write an autobiography, then you have to write only about the external stuff. Are there autobiographies that are about trying to, well, I guess well, Kafka does. Kafka writes a lot about how much he hates writing. Mm. Um, but that's not the, that's not what I mean. You know, like the actual process, like writers writing about writing. Yeah. Um, as memoir. Right. Um, I can't think of any, like what? There are painters who painting. write about painting. Yeah, and there are a lot of writers that write about painting. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, I mean, there, there's, there's Thomas Mann does have this this book that he wrote with his daughter Erica called "Story of a Novel" about how he wrote Doctor Faustus, but it's it's not really. I don't think it's what you have in mind. Um, I can't really think of anything off the top of my head. I'm sort of looking over at my shelves and wondering. Well, let's do it this way. What is the question that you're trying to answer when you're writing your, your biography of a novel? Um, 
for me, it's, it's some, it's multiple things. I don't think there was a one single thing. I mean, on the one hand, um, well, if there is a single thing I'm trying to do, it's, I'm trying to write the kind of book that I wish already existed. Um, yeah, uh, I can't remember who said that, but someone said you should always write the types of books that you wish you want to read yeah. Yeah, that you yourself want to read. Um, if you don't want to read what you've written, then guess what? Nobody else is going to either. Um, and for me, I, I've, I've, with, with this book that I've been working on for the past almost five years about specifically about Thomas Mann's The Magic Mountain, um, it simply began as a question of why do I like this novel so much? Um, and then it became a question of, um, as I reread the novel, well, lots of very fascinating things happened to Thomas Mann while he was writing the book. Um, and I realized that there was a story here that I didn't think had ever really been told. Um, there are lots of stories have been told about Thomas Mann, but there, there didn't seem to be anywhere an account of his life while he was writing uh, The Magic Mountain and what happened, not just to him, but, but to the world, Spe- specifically with the First World War, uh, the rise of uh, the Nazi movement in the Weimar Republic. And then very quickly, I just had this, this story that I wanted to tell. Um, but the the initial question was, you know, why do I love this novel so much, and what is it? Why does it matter to me? Um, and whether or not I've successfully answered that question obviously remains to be seen. Mm. So it wasn't that it wasn't. I love this novel so much. I want to spend more time with it. It was. It was. It was partly that for sure. Um, at least in the in, in the beginning, that's that. You know, I I, I reread it after not having read it for a couple of years, uh, and thought, you know, is this is this something I could write about? Um, is there enough, do I, do I feel like I love this novel enough that, um, that that love kind of outweighs my, um, my lack of, uh, scholarly credentials. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Um, do you think that the love that you have for Thomas Mann is the same in kind as the love that you have for the magic mountain? Oh, that's a good question. Um, ooh, very, very good question. The funny thing is, I, I don't really like anything he wrote after the Magic Mountain, <laughs> which is a lot. That's <laughs> um, funny. I I don't like Doctor Faustus, which is a novel that many, many people I know uh, really, really love. Um, I've always had a hard time getting through it. I I, I know why it's great and etc but i just don't like it very much um Mm. um, and did you um, read joseph and his brothers sorry did you read joseph and his brothers i have i've I've never gotten through the the the, all three volumes um three volumes yeah Uh, four i think sorry four volumes yeah in my head it's like eight so you're fine (laughs) (laughs) yeah um and i i'm actually going to be uh going through that whole thing over the summer uh, once I finish my manuscript, um, but the, they seem like such an outlier to me in his in his general um, oeuvre. Um, in conversation but, with somebody the other day, they referenced like vo- the last volume of jo- Joseph and his brothers, and I was just like, "Oh my god, this could just be a lie, and it would still be a flex." <laughs> <laughs> such a flex, quote. <laughs> um, but I also think it, it's because the. Um, I think that the Magic Mountain is is um, where a certain chapter of Thomas Mann's um, writing life sort of comes to an end. 
Um, a lot of the things that have preoccupied him from his very early um, stories up until the Magic Mountain sort of closes there. Um, and and because I've just been, I mean, I've almost exclusively been reading um, his early writing up until the Magic Mountain. I mean, he's he's nearly middle-aged, or he's well over middle-aged by the time that the novel is actually published. Um, but I is just there, have, it, I, sorry, go ahead. Sorry. Is in, in, in the way that you understand it, is the Magic Mountain his response to reflections of a non-political man? Is like his answer to that? Yeah, in, in you know, there's there's a, a certainly a reading of it where you could call it a kind of apologia um, <laughs> for for having written the reflections, and there are he takes lines from the reflections and puts them into um, the mouths of some of his characters, and many of the debates um, or the um, the issues that he debates in, in the reflections um, are revisited um, in, in the magic mountain. And that's, that's part of what, it, what makes the novel um, so fascinating and why it's so he, great that the reflections has, is now available again in, um, um, in English. Yeah. Was it, it's been available for a while in English now. And they it, just it has, but the, it was, the, the translation was out of print for, um, for decades. Um, yeah. I think it was published in the, first translated in the 80s and now New York Review Books Classics has, has put out um, an excellent edition of it. The same translation. Did, uh, oh, okay. Yeah. Is that the one? Yeah, Mark did the introduction. Mark Little, yeah, excellent introduction. Um, um, I took, I took, I sat in on the course that he gave at Columbia while he was writing that introduction. Oh, fantastic. Um, which was like, it was yeah it was it was this he was started we i think we started with reflections and ended with the magic mountain and just like mm. plotted his intellectual and political evolution we didn't end with the magic mountain we ended with the speeches um, right yeah i forget what they're called like in defense of democracy or whatever yes the that he gives after the assassination of um uh, walter radnau um on the german republic and he very you know bravely this middle-aged um conservative, good German uh, Bürger uh, stands up in front of a bunch of, uh, you know, young national socialists and, and tells them to, to fight for democracy. Right. So all of this indicates that the external has a lot to do with the internal. Yeah. No? Yeah. yeah. It, it certainly absolutely does. Um, and, but, but there is also a danger that I'm, I'm trying very hard to avoid and maybe actually I can't make this mistake because I, I'm not a scholar, so there's a lot that I just don't know. <laughs> uh, um, but you know, you can also imagine the kind of book that that makes too big of a deal of the external stuff, in which the it almost turns the novel into uh, you know some kind of connect the dots um, exercise. Um, because of course, I mean, there's a lot that I'm writing about, you know, external stuff, the First World War. Uh, the, the revolutions in Germany in 1918, 1919. Um, but I'm also very careful to step away sometimes and, and let's remember that this is a work of fiction. You know, it's not, it's not a, a documentary. It's funny, one thing that we haven't mentioned yet um, that's sort of a big question when it comes to, to biographies uh, and about which I have very strong opinions is childhood. Um, the I Freudian always, impulse? Yeah, and I, I always skip... Um, if I'm reading a, a, you know, a cradle to the grave life of, of someone, I skip the childhood. Why? I am completely uninterested and I don't believe any of it. Um, 
<laughs> I'm, I'm sort of like contradicting my own, um, you know, desire for, for biographies to be more fictional and, and more imaginative in some, to some extent. But when it comes to childhoods, I just, I don't buy a word of it. Is it that you um, think that the, the actual facts of the childhood are manufactured or is it that you think that the, like the, the weird psychotherapy that the author is completely unqualified to do is just worthless and like predisposes you to judge the character in a way that is not befitting. Yeah. I, th I think that's, that's pretty much it. Um, it's a bit like when I come across dreams in fiction, I can't read it. It, it just, it strains um, the, the imagination. Um, there's a, mm. there's a really good book I recently read by Adam Phillips uh, called Becoming Freud um, in which he, he talks a lot about Freud's, um, ideas about biography. And I didn't realize the extent to which he kind of saw psychiatry as being something that kind of pushes uh, biography away and rivals biography. Oh, okay. Um, and uh, he makes the very good point um, that or Phillips via Freud makes the very good point that childhood is always a problem for the biographer because it's always going to be a very dubious fiction. Um, and Philip says that children live their lives forward and biographers understand children's lives backward. Uh, mm. I, I think that's very, very well put. Um, and, you know, any, any memories or incidents in childhood are always going to be the sort of traumatic ones or the, you know, not, not the happy memories, the happy days in which you did nothing. Um, so there is a kind of, they're always skewed towards recounting some kind of incident that surprise, surprise will become very significant later on in life. And there's just this, this, um, um, a lazy kind of Freudianism, I think that goes into accounts of, of artists' childhoods. Yeah. I think that, I think that like with, with the whole enterprise, there's this attempt to see the face of God and <laughs> suddenly it won't be a mystery anymore. Like yeah. what you, what you really what you really don't want, even though you're inclined to it against your better judgment, is to make this person human, because mm -hmm. it, it, then you you will have completely sapped them of the magic with which they have um, it made your own life more beautiful. Mm -hmm. You know that's why yeah. that's why we love these artists so much because they have managed to it, it somehow beautify our own our own interpretation of the world through, through how they saw it. And so we, we both want to explain to the, ourselves how they did this and don't want the magic to be taken away. Um, exactly. And, and, yeah. Um, yeah. You can never... And with, yeah. with childhood, they had this... Like, that will give us all the answers. Well, this person was so extraordinary because their childhood was so horrific or, or some, something to that effect. Yeah, and that's why the, you know, the, the whole concept of the definitive or authoritative biography is, is just nonsense because even if it were possible, we wouldn't want it. Um, and I mean, you know, even Jesus Christ got four biographies, uh, <laughs> four, four very different, sometimes contradictory, uh, uh, accounts of his life in, in the Bible. So, um, um, you know, you, you, there is no such thing as a single or unitary truth about uh, one person's life. Um, I mean, as you say, even if there was, I, I wouldn't want to hear it. Um, right. And because I, really, the, like, the question that they're asking is, how do they do this? And the answer is that they had a particular kind of mind that mm -hmm. 
you're not going to have access to. Exactly. Um, and that's always going to be the, you know, the mystery that, that no, no biography, no scholarly tome, no, nothing can ever solve. Um, Even if you had the artist in the room with you and you asked them, how did you do this? They couldn't answer you. I mean, there's no. something that really bothers me about writings about art in general is that they'll say like, oh, well, this is what the artist is trying to do with this picture or with this or with this yeah. story. Um, I think this is easier to say about essays or philosophy than it is to say about fiction or paintings or yep. movies um, because you can be more explicit in them. But if the if you can say this is what the person is trying to do, it's probably not very good or you probably didn't understand it. Exactly. And I'm sure that, you know, you're, you're a great writer yourself, so you, you know this uh, feeling that when you sit down and, and, and write, um, even though neither of us are, are fiction writers, as far as I know, you don't also write fiction, although I wouldn't be surprised if you do. Um, uh, not, not well. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but you, at least I feel very much that when I sit down to write something, I don't need, I don't really know what it is I'm about to say yet, and that I I find out what I'm going to say as I'm writing, um, meaning that I don't sit down with some preconceived notion of now I'm going to say this. Uh, obviously, I have certain ideas of what I'm going to be doing, but, but, um, even in the case of, of, you know, fairly straightforward nonfiction writing that I do, um, there's a mystery there about where it comes from and, and how, uh, it comes out. And so, you know, in, in the cases of fiction, I think that's, you know, it, it's, as you, as you point out, um, that is much more the case, uh, with fiction. It must be so much harder. I mean, I know that Every time I sit down to write, I think I'm never going to be able to do this again. I mean, as yeah. soon as I as, as soon as I finish something, I feel like I, I can never do this again. And as soon as I try and start, I'm like, "What am I yeah. doing? Like, this is yeah. just this is impossible." And if you go back and read something that you wrote, you know, years ago or something, and you think, and someone if someone were to point to a sentence and say, "Where did that come from?" I would I wouldn't I wouldn't know what to say <laughs> in most cases. I can't um, reread anything I write. Do you reread what you write? Oh, when I really, really hate myself, I do. Yeah. Oh my god, <laughs> I hate it. I hate it. Somebody asked me about an essay that I had written and I'd forgotten about it, and I, I was just—it was a person whose opinion I really respect, and I wanted to be able to talk to her about it. And I like agonized for weeks about whether or not I was going to go and read it. And I just couldn't do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. You, you want everything to come with a kind of note of apology. Exactly. <laughs> Sorry, I, I wrote this two years ago. Please don't hold me against it. Hold against you're so it. excited when somebody has read something you've written and then you're so horrified because you realize that it means that they have read the thing you have written. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But there's uh, there was a, uh, I'm, I'm keep forgetting people's names today. There was a minor Bloomsbury critic, I think who said that the, um, that being a literary critic, a literary critic is, is someone who conducts their education in public. Um, yeah. I, I think that's very true of most kinds of, of um, you know, criticism. Uh, and that's what makes it so embarrassing is because, uh, especially today when when most pieces that you write, they don't have the, the good uh, sense to go and, and die away in some obscure journal somewhere. They're now readily searchable on the internet. Um, and so, um, it, but it's, it's, it's just... I, I'm very, very aware of that all the time that, you know, here I've written something and now I'm basically exposing myself and all my, 
my, my blind spots and ignorance and, and things I've misunderstood for everyone to point and laugh at. <laughs> and, you, yeah. and it's like, if That's you're a coward, like. then you don't write about the things you care about. But if you right. don't write about the things you care about, then why are you writing? Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's just, <laughs> a, it's a, it's a tormented experience. And I guess it just has to be. Why do we do this to ourselves, Wharton? We do it on purpose. I don't know. I, I guess <laughs> I, I don't know how to do anything else. Uh, so. I think it's, I think it might also be what you said before. It's that you're trying to you're trying to answer a question that you need you need to have the answer to, and nobody else is bothered answering it. So it's like, even if you get it wrong, you it really is something that you're working out for yourself. Yeah, and and you know, without it, there would just be life, and I I don't think that's enough. At least not in my case. Uh, life itself is just not enough. There needs to be something more. Um, and for me, that's that's the writing. Well, your readers and editors are the beneficiary of that condition, and we are very grateful to you for this wonderful essay. And I am thankful that you joined me for this really lovely conversation. No, my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed that conversation and have not yet read Morton's essay, The Fiction That Dare Not Speak Its Name, it is available for a limited time in front of our paywall on our website, libertiesjournal.com. If you would like access to the essay when it is no longer in front of the paywall, as well as access to all Liberties issues past and present, um, and you are not yet a subscriber, then head over to libertiesjournal.com and subscribe.